Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. 1 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. And if you remember, this church started out of great trial and great adversity, but they're strong and they're faithful because of that trial and adversity. And this early epistle is written to encourage these believers in faithful living and to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. Paul began this letter by giving thanks to God for these Thessalonian believers. And then as we saw last time, Paul began to commend the wonderful example that these believers had set for others to emulate. Like what? Like following the missionaries and the Lord well. Like receiving the word in much affliction and joy. And then like becoming godly examples themselves to those around them. And that's all very, very good. Paul continues talking about their example in today's passage. Let's look at that. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. They themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So again, we see Paul continuing to highlight the wonderful example of these Thessalonian Christians by showing us four more great qualities that they displayed. First, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from them. Now, the word of the Lord is the Bible, of course, but here this is specifically a reference to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ. What specifically? Well, first comes the bad news so that we can really understand the good news. The bad news is this, that we are all sinners and sin has serious wages, right? The Bible is very clear that we are all slaves to sin, that Satan owned us and he is a wretched master. That's true of every person, whether they realize that truth or not. See, everybody in the world is held captive in their sin, sold under sin, in bondage to their sin, and the Bible is very clear about that truth. So, How then do I get out of that bondage? Well, here's how. You have to pay a price. All right, what price? Death. The wages of sin is death. The price of sin is death. That means that either you die and pay the price for your own sin for all eternity in hell, since sin committed against a holy, eternal, and infinite God is worthy of eternal and infinite wages, or else someone who is truly worthy and able comes along and pays that incredibly high and costly price for you. Okay, but who? I mean, who can do that, who is worthy, and then who is willing to do that? Only one. Right? Jesus. God the Son, only Him. He alone could pay the asking price for your soul, and that's exactly what He did. As John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, how good is that? Think about that. Jesus, God the Son, left heaven, came here, took on human flesh, 100% God and 100% man at the same time, lived a perfect life, died on the cross as the believer's substitute for sin, and he rose up from the dead three days later. And that means everything that matters for us who believe. 
that although we have all sinned against God and deserve eternal judgment for that sin, look, because of His great love and because of His undeserved mercy, He sent His own Son to bear the penalty that we as believers deserve. See, Jesus paid all of our wages on the cross so we could be declared righteous and right with the Lord God Almighty. Jesus paid our eternal debt so that we who believe in true, saving, repentant faith could be forgiven and go to heaven instead of hell. And that is the best news that there ever was. And look, that word, that eternal good news, that gospel, it sounded forth from these Thessalonian believers. Now, side note, this still ties in with election in verse 4. And so we see clearly that election and evangelism are closely knitted together, at least they should be. See, the elect of God are the ones who go and sound forth the good news of Christ, for this is who we are and this is what we do. Sounded forth literally means to sound out, to reverberate and to bounce off other objects like an echo. And so the picture is one of a clear, audible, unmistakable proclamation of the gospel going forth. Okay, so what does that tell us? It tells us that the Thessalonians became a sounding board from which the gospel echoed across the world. That the gospel message was like ripples in a pool that spread out into ever-widening circles around them. It was like a trumpet blast that went forth and echoed from place to place to place everywhere and all around. And how good is that? I mean, that's the way it should be, right? No shame, no fear, no embarrassment, but instead, <coughs> conviction and passion for the lost souls around them that then compelled them to share the good news even when it may be rejected and even when it may come to a high, at a high price for them. Even so, it still sounded forth from them. Look, the world is lost. This world is lost, it's empty, it's hopeless, and it's heading for hell. And they desperately need to hear the good news of Christ because He's the only real answer to their true needs, He alone. And so, as these Thessalonian believers saw the emptiness and the desperation and the futility and the hopelessness of the lost souls around them, Something that Christ had recently rescued them from themselves, well, they had to do something to help, see? They cared, and so they had to act. Let me tell you about Jesus. That's what they did. Let me tell you some good news that can save your soul from wrath. Let me tell you about the one who's forgiven me of all my sin. Let me tell you about the one who can give you purpose and meaning and peace and, and hope and joy unspeakable. Jesus Christ is His name. So they went around constantly telling people the good news of Christ. And look, that word spread in Macedonia, where Thessalonica was located. And also it went into Achaia, which was down to the south. And then it went to everywhere else around them. And look, it all came from a few newly saved, passionate, suffering souls in Thessalonica. Isn't that the way it should be? I mean... Shouldn't every Christian be doing that? How could we not be doing that? I mean, we're not stones, so how could we not tell people the best news in the history of the world, especially when it can have eternal results? So, what about your friends? What about your loved ones, your neighbors, your family members? Have they heard the good news of Christ from you? Notice this. 
Notice that it was simple everyday believers who did this. Christians just like you and I. How? Well, they had the love and joy of God on their hearts, and they also had an intense passion for the lost souls around them, and so they couldn't help but talk of Christ, and they couldn't help but to represent Christ well, and they couldn't help but to shine forth His love and truth out of them to others. See, because of love, they just found it difficult to keep quiet about Jesus. Like the Thessalonians, we're called to share the good news of Christ with the lost souls that are all around us. The, the Great Commission applies to every Christian. We're all called to shine brightly for the Lord. We are the spiritual watchmen for the many souls that surround us. And God has given us all the privilege of being His ambassadors to this lost, dying, dark world. And woe to us if we don't live up to our high calling and to our high responsibility. Now think about this. There are over 8 billion people in the world. Around 166,000 souls die in the world every day. That's almost 7,000 souls every hour, 116 souls every minute, and nearly two souls every second nonstop. And most of those people don't know the Lord. Most of those people are dying in their sin and they're going to hell. Now think about that. Hordes of people in Myanmar are dying in their sin every day. Masses of people in Morocco don't have the hope that comes through Jesus Christ. Tons of people all around us here in Vacaville are hopeless, lost, and wandering around like sheep without a shepherd. And, and look, here we are. And God put us here for a reason. And woe to us if we don't sound forth the word of truth, the good news of Christ to the lost souls all around us like the Thessalonian believers did. Woe to us. That reminds us of the watchman in Ezekiel chapter 33. There, familiar to you, but again, appropriate to bring up here. We see that a watchman was called to stand on the city wall that surrounded the city, and he was to watch for danger. If he saw danger, then he was called to blow the trumpet to warn the people that danger was coming. If he blew the trumpet and warned the people, then any danger that came upon them is on their head because they'd been warned and they didn't do anything about it. But look, if the watchman saw danger coming and he didn't blow the trumpet and he didn't warn the people, well, any danger that came to the people is now on his head, the watchman's head, because he didn't sound the warning and he didn't fulfill his responsibility. Well, God tells Ezekiel that he was a spiritual watchman for the people of Israel of his day. And just as Ezekiel was called to be the watchman for the people of Israel, so are all Christians called to be the watchman for those around us. Jesus makes that clear in the Great Commission and also in his call for us to be salt and light on this earth. We all have a responsibility, see, we have a holy calling. And when we sound the warning by word and by deed, with passion, love, and conviction, then our responsibility is met. But when we don't, well, we aren't living up to our high calling and to our great responsibility as spiritual watchmen. This is very serious. It's very serious. Now, I can't save anyone, right? God is the one who saves, but I can and I must sound the warning. How could I not? See, people are desperate and I have the cure for their eternal soul. How could I not tell them? Spurgeon noted, sinners are dying in the street by hundreds. 
Men are sinking into the flames of eternal wrath, but many Christians fold their arms. They pity the poor perishing sinner, but they do nothing to show that their pity is real. But not here. Right? Not here. Lord, help us to show that our pity is real. Lord, help us to blow the trumpet loudly into the ears of those around us. Lord, help us to fulfill our responsibility and our calling by God. Lord, help us to sound forth the good news of Christ boldly, loudly, clearly, unapologetically, and passionately, just like the Thessalonian Christians did. Second, their faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything, the end of verse 8. So the word's gone out, but look, so also has their faith gone out. Now, what does that mean? First, it means that these people were saved. It means that they had placed their faith in Christ alone to, to save their lost, desperate, needy souls. It means that they had entrusted their souls over to God, who alone could deliver them and rescue them and redeem them because of what he did on the cross for everyone who believes. So these Thessalonians were first saved by faith. But look, it also means that they clearly lived out that faith. Look, their faith is now directed toward God in the direction of God facing God. And it's not directed toward idols anymore. And their lives made that truth very, very clear. God is now the object of their faith. The direction of their lives has clearly changed. They're now living for the glory and pleasure of God more and more, and that truth is clearly seen in their lives. Question, can you see faith? Yes. Because true saving faith results in a changed life. And Hebrews 11 makes that fact very clear, as well as this passage. Look at look what it says. Their faith has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. Now, why don't they need to say anything? Because the people around them can see their faith. Because the faith is displayed in a radically, in the radically changed lives of the Thessalonians, which was crystal clear after meeting Jesus. Okay, how? Well, it doesn't say how that faith was displayed specifically, but clearly, this reputation for faith in God would have begun at home. Husbands would be astonished at the new conduct of their wives who had recently converted to Jesus. Wives would see the, their newly saved husbands being radically changed so that now those men are leading and loving their wives like men of God should more and more when they didn't do that before. And look, friends and neighbors are commenting on the new priorities that are seen among those who now embrace the gospel. They act different. They, they talk different. They, they have new joy and they have real purpose. They're, they're radically different. It's clear and you can't ignore it anymore. See? And look, so profound was the change among so many people that news of a very significant event in Thessalonica began to spread everywhere. Three missionaries came to town. They preached. They caused a ruckus. They got run out of town. But things are now very different than they were before, and it's very clear. And look, these new Christians won't give up their faith even in the midst of severe persecution. And even more... They respond to trials with a steadfast hope and an otherworldly joy and a love that is much different than anything that I've ever seen. And it's all very clear that Jesus Christ is alive and real and powerful and that He truly does change people. And that's what a faith that's gone out looks like. And so, more and more, 
people took notice of these believers in Jesus in Thessalonica. That reminds me of the time that Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. Look what the Sanhedrin said after talking with Peter and John, verse 13. Then they realized that they, Peter and John, that they had been with Jesus. How good is that? How good is that? The the thought, man, that looks familiar. These guys look exactly like the guy that we nailed to a cross just a few weeks ago. Oh yeah, Peter and John had been preaching boldly about Christ, but it was much more than, than just words. No, Christ emanated from them. Christ clearly rubbed off on them. Peter and John acted just like Christ, see? Realize means to know, to comprehend, and to perceive things as they truly are, and not just to have an opinion about. So it's clear, and it's obvious, it was resoundingly evident, these guys have been with Jesus. They not only preach about Jesus, they act like Jesus. And there's no denying that they spend a great amount of time with Jesus. Isn't that the way it should be? Anybody? Okay. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, We are... To God, the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we're the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. In other words, and this applies to every Christian, Christ should be clearly seen in us by those around us. And even if they hate what we smell like, it should be clear nonetheless. Christ. See? Christ. His reality in our lives should be clear to all. The fact that we love Him and spend time with Him should be evident to those around us. People should know that we've put our faith in God, that we have entrusted our souls into the care of God. And that fact should have should be seen very clearly in how we live out our lives. Faith lived out. See, faithfulness. We love Christ and our love is clear. That's the idea. Faith that's seen. That's real faith. Faith that bears fruit, and that isn't just all talk. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites were being led by Moses, Moses would go and spend time with God in the tabernacle, and when Moses would come out of the tabernacle, his face would be glowing as he reflected back the Shekinah glory of God. And for us, even though it won't be a literal glow on our faces like it was with Moses, people should see the glow of Christ on us. That guy, that guy spends much time with Jesus, man. I can tell. That woman clearly loves Jesus. You can, you can see it, him all over her. That person's a Christian. You can't help but notice it. That's the way it should be for all of God's children. People should see the family resemblance. They should see the reality of our faith. And the question is, do they? What are you known for? What is our church known for? Love for Christ, faithfulness to Christ, love for His Word, a a passion to show and tell others about our God whom we love, or uh, they're the funny church, they're the mean church, the cold church, the dead church, the storytelling church, the worldly church, or the something else that means nothing in the long run church. Lord, help us to be like the Thessalonians where our faith goes out and makes it evident and clear who we love, and what we are living for. Third, they turned from idols and they served God. Verse 9. They themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now here, 
we see that the conversion of the Thessalonians began with the way that they received Paul and his friends, which says a lot. Why? Because as one said, how people receive a sincere ministry of God's word largely determines their spiritual state. And that's right. If they love God, see, then they will love those who bring God's word to them. Now today, there are many churches, even many large churches, that claim the name of Jesus, but at the same time, they resist clear and faithful Bible teaching and clear and faithful Bible teachers. That resistance reveals their true heart, regardless of how big that church is. And usually, the true impact of those churches isn't lasting, especially when the hard times come. Instead, humble and faithful Christians who rejoice to have God's word opened, and who respect faithful Christian leaders and preachers, those are the most likely to make a lasting gospel impact because then it truly sinks in, head and heart. It grows roots and it bears true and eternal fruit. Here we see that as Paul preached the scriptures in Thessalonica, Many who heard his message were converted to faith in Christ, truly converted, truly changed forever. How do we know that? Because they repented and they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. That shows us that these early Christians understood that becoming a Christian requires a radical break with your former life. That you don't just add Jesus to your life alongside everything else. No, you don't do that. But Jesus becomes your life because of love. Verse 9 shows us that many of the Thessalonian believers had been converted out of pagan idolatry rather than from Judaism. And from the beginning, they realized that they couldn't place Christ alongside the idols of their former lives. They, They couldn't do that. No, Christ must be all or nothing. And so they made Christ all, rightly so. Isn't he worthy of that? Right? Uh, In Mark 8.34, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Okay, what does that mean? It means that Christ must come first if he's your true Savior and Lord. So look, first Jesus says that you need to deny yourself if you're going to come after him. The word deny means to refuse, to disown, to disregard, and to renounce. Who? Yourself, right? So not me, but him, all him. He now comes first. Okay, but what about taking up your cross? What does that mean? Well, when Jesus took up his cross, what came next? Death, right? See, at that time, a cross was an instrument of execution. It was a symbol of torture and death that waited all who opposed Roman authority. So when Jesus mentions taking up your cross, the disciples would have immediately pictured a poor condemned criminal walking along the road carrying the instrument of his own death on his own back. See, a man who took up his cross began a death march, carrying the beam that he would hang on and carrying the beam that he would die on. So when Jesus says to come after him, you need to take up your cross, it meant that you were willing to pay any price for the cause of Christ and that you were willing to do that on a daily basis because of your love for Christ. It meant a daily willingness to endure shame, embarrassment, ridicule, reproach, mockery, rejection, 
persecution, and even death for his sake. It meant that you were willing daily to start on a death march for the cause of Christ if it came down to it. It meant that you'd be willing daily to suffer the pains and the reproaches of a condemned criminal if need be. And here Jesus is saying very clearly, I want you to deny yourself and I want you to be ready to die every day for me as a true follower of mine. And it shows us the absolute priority that Christ must have in our lives over and above anything and everything else. Because guess what? He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. To Peter, taking up his cross meant daily living for Jesus in a world that opposed him. It led to humiliation, beatings, hatred, and ultimately an upside down death on a cross. To Paul, it meant daily living for Jesus in the midst of fierce and strong opposition. It meant being beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, going hungry, being thrown into prison, intense pressure and intense stress. And it too ultimately meant death for him. Paul himself said, I die daily. And there he's simply saying, every single day I anticipate the possibility of my own death so that in my mind, I'm dying every day. But guess what? Jesus is worth all of it. He's worth all of it. And look, compared to the lame idols of this fading life, there's no comparison. In 1 John 5, 21, John writes these words. Keep yourself from idols. You say, okay, got it, John. Got it, I don't worship idols. That's, that's what they do in Myanmar when they bow down to the wretched images of Buddha, but, but we don't do that here, not so fast. Because idolatry does indeed abound here. It's interesting. The word for idol literally means what is seen. And it signifies not only that which would engage the attention of the physical eyesight to the detriment of our spiritual lives, but also to any false thought that would engross the mind and obscure our faith in the Lord. See, an idol isn't just a pagan image, but an idol can be anything that would mar your spiritual life. It could be anything that would harm your walk with the Lord. It could be anything that's contrary to Scripture and is therefore anything that does harm to your view of God and to your walk with God. See, Christ must be our all in all, Him alone, and anything that takes that place is an idol. That's idolatry, and we are to guard ourselves against that. So, idolatry can be bowing down to an image and worshiping it, yes. But it can also be anything that takes the rightful place of God in your life. Paul equated greed with idolatry. Your career, your pursuit of money, your possessions, excessive devotion uh, to leisure and to self, and even other people, even your children, can become idols in your life. Putting your intellect above God's revelation is idolatry. Watching hours of inane TV shows each week or spending hours playing computer games while not having time to spend with God or not having time to serve Him, that's idolatry. How many times do people make up God in their own image instead of worshiping the God of the Bible? That too is idolatry. Where we pick and choose the God that, that we are comfortable with. Not the God of the Bible, but the God that we kind of fashion into our own image. The God that we're comfortable with. And, and we set that made up view of God ahead of the one true God as revealed to us in Scripture. That's idolatry. At the root of this is self. 
The idolater hasn't yielded to the throne of his life over to the Lord, but he really worships self. He wants his will and he wants his way and he tries to use God to get what he wants. If his God delivers, he'll set that God back on the shelf until the next time that he needs something and then he uses it again at that time. If he doesn't deliver, he'll shop around for a better God who gives him what he wants. That happens all the time. But look, the idolater doesn't really submit to the living and true God. No, it's really all about self. And sadly, I fear that even many who claim to be Christians are simply trying to use God to get happier, to get a bit more peace or to get a better life or to have a better marriage or to find a better version of myself. Okay, sounds good, but but what about God? No, it's about me, 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 me. This is what I want. It's about me. No, that's idolatry. One said, you make up your own gods and then you use them to get what you want. The problem is, these gods may be stolen and your way of life is destroyed. If it can be taken from you, it isn't the true God. Make sure that even if you claim to follow Him as a born-again Christian, you don't fall into the idolatry of using Him to get what you want or accepting the parts of Him that you like and rejecting the parts of Him that you don't like. There's no difference in that than in pagan idolatry. And he's right. And here's a question. What do you love the most? What, what do you think of the most? God or, or something else? Does something besides Christ have a hold on you? Are you a servant to something or to someone other than Christ? Well, that's an idol. And it's time to give that up and to give all to Christ. Spurgeon points out that if a man has a box, but he's not sure what's in it, he won't be very careful about guarding that box. But if he knows that it contains a rare and valuable treasure, he will be diligent to guard it carefully. Well, we in Christ have a treasure, an incredible treasure, and we're called to guard it so that we don't drift and let lesser things replace that priceless treasure, Christ. Thessalonian believers turned away from the false idols of their own life and they turned to Christ alone and it was clear they were all in. They got it. They knew that Jesus was their all in all. They knew that nothing compares to Jesus. They knew that compared to Christ, everything else is rubbish. Scubalon in the Greek, dung, garbage. Their motto was, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. See, they got it. So they turned away from the worthless idols of their former life and they turned to God. And look, it says they served Him, the living and true God. How good is that? I love how Paul does this. See, by using the phrase, the living and true God, Paul was pointing out that idols are false deities who neither possess life nor pass it on to others. No, idols are dead. They have no life, while the true God is the author and the giver of life. And there's no comparison. Look, how ridiculous for a person to cut down a tree, use half the tree for firewood, and then fashion an idol out of the other half of that tree and then worship the idol that you made out of the tree that you cut down. That's crazy. Same is true when we put anything else above the one true God. Money, self, drugs, alcohol, work, another person, our man-made version of Jesus, anything else ridiculous and empty. Here's true wisdom. Turning to God, the one true God, the God who saves, and then serving Him with passion and conviction until glory. That matters. That truly lasts. Look, 
did that drug or did that alcohol die on a cross to save you from eternity in hell? Did it? No. No. Did that other person save Jesus, not Jesus, but did that other person die on a cross to save you from eternity in hell? That person that you worship? Did that... Did your money die on a cross to save you from eternity in hell? Did your house die on a cross to save you from eternity in hell? Did your car die on a cross to save you from eternity in hell? Do you, did your lusts and, and that sin that you're embracing so tightly to, did that die on a cross to save you from eternity in hell? Did it? No. Stop serving those useless idols and serve the one who's truly worthy of our love and our worship and our service, Jesus Christ alone. Nothing compares to Him. This is what Christians do. We serve our God whom we love gladly and lovingly. The Greek word for serve is the word doulos, which is a Greek word for a common slave. See, these Thessalonians rightly knew that they now belong to Christ, head and heart, And therefore, it was their greatest joy to serve and to obey Him, this God whom they loved with fervor. Yes, Lord. Yes, whatever you want. Yes, Lord, serving you, which greatly pleases you, is my greatest joy because it pleases you. That's right. And that's the heart of the person who now knows that the idols of this fading life are all vanity. They're all vanity. And Christ is everything. And our joy, praise, and glory comes when we obey our good captain's commands. The Thessalonian Christians knew this. I pray that we know it as well. Stop serving those useless idols. Flee those things and serve Christ alone. Our all in all. Fourth, they were waiting for Jesus. Verse 9. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and look, to wait for His Son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So they're waiting. Right? They're waiting. Maranatha is an Aramaic word that's been translated into Greek, and it means, O Lord, come. And the Thessalonian Christians continually manifested a Maranatha heart attitude that expectantly looked for the return of the king. See, The return of Christ is imminent, which means that it's the next thing in line that's to happen. And while it's been 2,000 years of waiting... That fact shouldn't deter our joy or our zeal or our eager expectation of Christ's return. I mean, we're closer now than we've ever been, and we should be excited about that fact. The word wait conveys the meaning of expectant waiting, of sustained, patient, and trusting waiting. It pictures an eager looking forward to the coming of one whose arrival was anticipated at any time and a waiting for one whose coming is expected. Like children who are eagerly and excitedly and lovingly waiting for daddy to come home from deployment, hardly able to contain their zeal, that's how we in Christ should be regarding our Lord's return. Oh yes, we're also look, uh, working while we're waiting. Oh yes, I mean, we aren't twiddling our thumbs and wasting time. No, but rather, we are ready. We are working. We are redeeming the time. We are sharing our faith. We're fighting sin and we're fighting Satan and we're praying much and we're drawing ever closer to our beloved Lord and we're living for the glory of God more and more while we wait, but we're still actively waiting with eager anticipation Because it could be very soon. And you should be excited about that. Look at 1 John 3, 2. 
when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. Amen? How good is that? That's something worth waiting for. Anybody excited about that? Because you should be excited about that. I mean, he's coming back for us. He's coming back. Hey, the theme of the second coming of Christ is found throughout the Bible. Throughout the New Testament. The time of his return is unknown, but it's certain. It's then that Jesus will return in the clouds with glory and with great power, as a thief in the night and as lightning in the sky, where every eye will see him. Then our bodies will be redeemed and we will enter into the fullness of our salvation. Then Satan will be defeated and the curse will be lifted. Then all the saints will be glorified and the earth will be destroyed by fire and creation will be liberated. Then sin and death will be conquered and Christ shall reign forever and ever and we are called to be ready for that amazing day. And the question is, are you ready? Are you living like you're ready? Commentator William Hendrickson says, when you await a visitor, you've prepared everything for his coming. You've arranged the guest room, the the program of activities, your time and your other duties, and all this in such a manner that the visitor will feel perfectly at home. So also, awaiting the very Son of God who's coming out of the heavens implies a sanctified heart and life. And he's right. Expectant waiting implies a heart and a life that's truly ready to see Jesus. Lord, I've been waiting for you. Everything is ready. Is that true of you? Instead of, oh Lord, uh, I I thought you'd come in another day. Can you come back later? I mean, the house is dirty, Lord. No, no. Lord, help us to be ready today and then every day after that. Because again, it could happen at any moment. It's going to be a great day for us in Christ. But for those who don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, that will be their judgment day and it will be too late for them. That's why we must tell people the good news of Christ today. Look what Paul adds. He, Christ, was raised from the dead. Why is mentioning that important? Because our hope of Christ's return wouldn't mean anything if Christ didn't rise from the dead. I mean, a dead Savior can't return, right? But just as the Lord promised to rise up from the dead and, and He came through with that promise, then God's promise of sending Jesus back for us is equally worthy of being believed and trusted. Look, the resurrection is a crowning proof not only of Christ's deity, but also the guarantee of our victory and resurrection from death to life. Jesus, God, He came down here. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. And three days later, He rose up from the dead, proving who He is and what He did. And without the resurrection, we're all doomed. But because He rose up from the dead, sinners like us can be saved from eternal wrath, from the just wages of our sin that condemns us. And look, He will indeed return for us. Now, It's possible to see the bones of Muhammad, Buddha, Abraham, and Joseph Smith. But it's impossible to see the bones of Jesus Christ because he alone has been raised up from the dead. Jesus is alive. Jesus conquered death and sin. And our victorious and conquering Lord will return soon for us. That's a fact. That is true good news that should excite us today. It was prominent for these Thessalonian believers. The second coming of Christ was the ever-present hope of the early church. And it was something that helped the Thessalonians to stand firm in the midst of great persecution. See, the Thessalonians viewed Christ's return not simply as a consummating event that was going to take place sometime out there in the future. No, 
They viewed it as something to be actively expected in the near future. And it affected how they lived, ready, eager, zealous, with one eye on the horizon. How much more us today? May this great truth lay a hold of us today and motivate us to expectant waiting and to earnest living in light of Christ's imminent return. Could be very soon indeed. Lord, help us to always be ready. And by the way, so what if He doesn't come in our lifetime? So what? I mean, ready living is always best, you know. And I think He will come in our lifetime. But, but, but even if He doesn't, Ready living is always best, and none of us knows when our last day is going to be anyhow. So always being ready and eager for the Lord's return is wise for all of us. Paul then adds this at the end of verse 10. Even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Fact, wrath is coming. Note that God's wrath isn't an impulsive, sinful outburst of anger. No, but instead God's wrath is His right, just, holy, burning resolve to punish all evil. Apart from his wrath, God would be unworthy of our worship, since he would then be a deity who tolerated evil and let it go unpunished. But rightly so, he doesn't do that as a holy God. He must punish all sin, which he will indeed do. And if you're not a Christian, this should scare you to death. If you're not a Christian, this fact should scare you to death. Because the right punishment for sin against holy God is eternity in hell. The good news is that Jesus delivers us, all who believe, from that wrath. The word delivers means to draw or to snatch oneself from danger, from evil, or from an enemy. Well, Jesus delivers us, all true believers. The picture here is of a soldier who goes to a wounded comrade on the battlefield, picks him up, puts him on his shoulder, and carries him to safety. Another picture of this word is of someone wading in a rushing river and suddenly they're caught up in the current, totally powerless to save themselves. And as they cry out for help, a hand reaches out and snatches them from that dangerous current, rescuing them from impending death. That's what Jesus does for everyone who believes. So God's wrath is coming, but praise Him. We who are His children won't have to experience that wrath because Christ is our ark who keeps us safe from the coming flood of wrath. And just as Noah and his family were safe from the global flood because they were in that ark, so too will we in Christ be safe from the flood of God's coming wrath because Jesus is our ark of refuge who carries us through that wrath and takes that wrath onto himself so that we don't have to. I love the story of the old man who had many years ago been saved and delivered by the Lord. One day a young man came up and asked him what Jesus had done for him. The old man then went over to a dry pile of leaves, found a worm and put the worm in the middle of that pile of leaves. He then lit the outside of the pile of leaves on fire. Soon the flames came closer and closer to that worm and just before the flames reached the worm, the man plunged his hand into that pile and snatched up that worm, rescuing him from the flames. The old man then said, I am that worm. And that's not only a great picture of what Jesus did for the old man, but it's also a great picture of what Jesus has done for every one of us in Christ today. He rescues us. He delivered us. He saved us from the fire of hell and eternal wrath. He redeemed us by grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, in light of that fact, can we be indifferent or mediocre to a God who did this for us? To a God who died 
to save us? The Thessalonian Christians weren't indifferent. And neither should we be. Christ rescued them. And now they tell everyone they can about Jesus. Their faith and their love for Him is clear. They repented and they turned away from their old worthless idols and they served Christ now with fervor, the God whom they passionately loved and they eagerly and they expectantly waited for Him to return as they glorified Him with passion until that great day. Lord, help us to follow that godly example. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, so much for the godly example of the Thessalonians. Help us, Lord, to be like them, to be eager, to be expectant, to be repentant, to be filled with love and passion for you, to have a heart for the lost, and Lord, to have a faith that is seen clearly by those around us here in Vacaville and beyond. Because we love you in light of who you are and in light of what you've done. So Lord, help us to see you clearly and, and help us to respond accordingly for your glory. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.